All right. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 2. And once again, we are still in the first main section, coming close to the end now of it. But we're still in the first main section of the book of Romans, which uh, covers chapters 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, it's a section that falls under the heading of condemnation, because in it, Paul wants to prove that the whole human race apart from Jesus Christ is condemned by God, which means at one point God is going to judge this world. Now, last week we looked briefly at the judgment of believers, which is not a punitive judgment. It's a rewards-based judgment. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15. You can revisit that, read it again, where we saw believers coming up to the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat to receive their rewards. Now, we ran out of time. Uh, we wanted to look briefly at the judgment of unbelievers. But as I thought about it, I'm just going to have you read Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. We have studied that section so many times. And if you really want to get into it, go online and look at our Revelation study, chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. So uh, I don't think we need to re go over it again, at least not right now. So I want to jump into a new section now starting with verse 17 of Romans 2. And let me just read down through verse 24. So Paul said, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. Let me uh, start this evening with a story that I think will help kind of set the stage for our study. I heard this uh, a while back. It uh, took place in Arlington, Texas. There was an elementary school down there. Might still be there. But this particular school had just invested a lot of money in a state-of-the-art sprinkler system for the building and so the principal was very proud and uh, was a very uh, they spared no expense putting this system in very top class and about eight months later he was hosting a principal's conference there at the school and he wanted to he was taking various principals around showing them the school but he especially wanted to show them this new sprinkler system he's very proud of it so he took them into the room where the sprinkler system was kept you know it was a, it was a room like a electrical room but it was for this this whole setup and as he walks in he begins to show these principles this sprinkler system and so on he makes a horrifying discovery it was never hooked up to the water source true story now some might argue that to have a state-of-the-art sprinkler system even if it isn't hooked up is better I guess, than to not have one at all, but 
I believe just the opposite is true. Let me just say this first of all. If the principal and the administrators of that school had known the sprinkler system wasn't hooked up, of course, they would have immediately uh, had someone come out and finish the job. The problem was they trusted the company. I mean, these were trained professionals. Don't we all just trust the professionals in whatever field they happen to find themselves in, right? Because they know everything. That was before COVID. <laughs> but I'm confident that the people installing this system thought they had finished the job. I mean, I, I know they didn't do it on purpose, right? They probably even told the leaders, okay, we're done, everything's completed, everything is ready to go, and so on. The school officials were the victims of false information, which gave them a false sense of security. A false sense of security that really could have resulted in the deaths of many students had an actual fire broken out, because a sprinkler system that isn't hooked up can't save anyone. Now, I believe that people need a sense of security in their lives if they're going to have any semblance of peace. In fact, insecure people tend to have emotional problems. Because, again, people need to feel secure. The dictionary defines security as, and I'm quoting, the state of being or feeling secure, freedom from fear, anxiety, danger, something that gives the assurance of safety or protection. However, if our security and peace isn't rooted in fact, well, it's therefore based on a lie and is useless to protect us depending on what we have put our trust in, what we're drawing our security from, some things are more important than others, we'll say it's a sprinkler system. This is a life and death thing if it's malfunctioning or it's not hooked up right. We have to make sure that whatever security we have, uh, especially on the big things, is rooted in fact. Otherwise, it's just empty security based on lies. And as I said, I believe that everyone wants to live their life with a sense of security, whether it's economic security or job security or home security or national security. But I also believe that most people want spiritual security as well. This would encompass freedom from the fear of death because, you know, they have a sense of peace about meeting God someday. In other words, they feel safe from judgment in hell. There's a lot of people who have a sense of security when it comes to judgment. They do not think they're going to be judged for a lot of reasons. A lot of those reasons, unfortunately, are not rooted in fact. And this is the point Paul was getting at in this section of Romans 2, from verses 17 to 29. He's dealing with the issue of false security. Now, he's connecting it to the most important security that we can ever have security in Christ that will keep us free from coming judgment. However, in this section, he begins by addressing the, now he's addressing the Jews, prim, religious Jews primarily, but of course it scopes out to every religious person in the world, okay? But in this section, he's addressing primarily the Jews who were the epitome of those who were religious and therefore had a sense of security and peace about coming judgment, but it was false security and peace based on false information that the law could save them. And I'm sure some would argue that to have religion, even if it's not being practiced, is better than having no religion at all. Again, I disagree. 
I disagree because it gives people a false sense of security. And Jesus taught that this false sense of security will be carried by many all the way until Judgment Day. Turn to Matthew uh, 7 real quick. You all know it. The Lord Jesus was confronting people who had a false sense of security, and now they're facing judgment, and they're horrified. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now he gives us a glimpse of judgment day. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. As we've already looked at, Jesus said it's not what a person professes that proves their faith is genuine. It's what they practice that proves their faith is real. Faith only becomes real and genuine when it's rooted in obedience. Obedience doesn't save us. Obedience to God's word doesn't save us. But it is the evidence that we have true saving faith in our hearts. And that's the only way. I mean, you'll know them by their fruit, the fruit of a transformed life. Uh, that's the idea, right? Now, the Jewish people in Paul's day felt secure from God's judgment based on three primary things. And this is the heart of what Paul's going to deal with, okay? So you have a very religious group, the Jewish people. In fact, their religion, Judaism, was what God gave to them. So we know it wasn't off. We know it wasn't a cult, Right? And the Jewish people felt secure from God's judgment based on three primary things. First of all, their heritage. Their heritage. They were descendants of Abraham. Number two, they had been given God's law, which made them feel special in God's eyes and gave them special privileges. I mean, they also felt that because God gave them the law, they were a righteous people. Now, God put that to rest pretty quick. In Deuteronomy, he said, look, I haven't called you because you were a numerous people. You were a small and insignificant people. I didn't call you because you were a righteous people. You were a stiff-necked and rebellious people. I called you simply because I chose you. I chose you just because I chose you, my sovereignty. But they interpreted God giving them the law as an evidence that they were a righteous people. God wouldn't give his law to unrighteous people. And that implied we were right with him and would not come into judgment because we were righteous. And number three, that they were circumcised, which brought them into, into the covenant God made with Israel and further exempt another layer of protection, further exempted them from judgment. And so, guys, in this section, Paul sets out to systematically destroy their false security, uh, the false security that the Jews had kind of barricaded them in barricaded themselves in i should say and he does so by showing them that their heritage can't save them verses 17 to 20 that having the law can't save them verses 21 to 24 and that circumcision won't save them either verses 25 to 29 but guys in so doing he dismantles every religious person's false assurance as we're going to see whether they are Catholic or Protestant or uh, anyone else who is trusting in religious forms, ceremonies, and rituals that give them a sense of 
security, but cannot save them from judgment. So first of all, their heritage. They believed that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were never going to see judgment. Let's read verses 17 to 20 again. He said, Paul said, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Let's break that down, okay? First of all, he said, indeed, you are called a Jew. Now, the word Jew speaks of their nationality. The Jews were particularly proud of their nationality. In fact, so proud that many Jews living in Gentile cities used it as a surname. So in other words, if I was a Jew living in Gentile territory, I would write my name, Phil Ballmeyer, comma, Jew. That's how they saw them. They were proud of their the fact that they were Jews. The term Jew first shows up in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 6, in the King James Version. It probably comes from the word Judah, which means praise, although I have heard other scholars who attribute it to the word Judaism. Judy. The word Judah became a kind of umbrella term for their nationality, their race, their heritage, and their religion. It was a badge of honor for them, which they wore proudly because it distinguished them uh, as different, separate, and unique among all the other peoples and nations of the world. I mean, they were God's chosen people. They were a special group, and indeed they were. The problem is when people think that God, when God singles them out for special duty, that makes them better than everybody else. Mary, we love her, mother of Jesus, singled out by God as a young Jewish teenager to become the mother of Messiah. What an honor. What the church has done to Mary, if she knows about it, and I don't think she does, it would break her heart, though. Because as special a young lady as she was to be chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, she is not to be venerated in worship. Uh, and she was not sinless. In the book of Acts in chapter 1, as they're all gathered in the upper room, they're all praying with Mary, not to Mary. Okay? So this was a badge of honor, the term Jew. It uh, set them apart from everybody else in the world. And so to call themselves Jews was their boast. It was their bragging right. <laughs> we're better than anybody else. Why? Because we're Jews. We're children of Abraham. And you can read Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, when God first called Abram to be the father of a new nation. And you can read about that. But um, they actually believe, and we've talked about this before, they actually believe that Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell to pluck out of the line of those going in any, listen, unrighteous Jews. I've even heard unbelieving Jews. All that matters is that you had Abraham's blood in your veins and you were circumcised. And if you had those two things going for you, even if you didn't believe, in the God of Israel, you were still a Jew, and Father Abraham would pl would never allow a Jew to go in into hell. That's what they believed. You remember, turn to Matthew 3. This comes through 
in the statement of John the Baptist when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him to be baptized. <laughs> I love the way he handled them. Never read uh, Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, Matthew 3, verse 7. But when John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. I'm not going to baptize you until you prove you really are repentant for what you, how you live, you're, you're living your life, right? And then he hits them with this, right? He said, um, and do not think to say to yourselves, See, the context is judgment. Who has warned you to flee from the judgment that's coming? And don't think to say among yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks, right? But see, they were putting their trust in that, the fact that they were the children of Abraham. He goes on to say in verse 17, and they rest or rely on the law. They thought that because God gave them the law, which is God's righteous standard, God's righteous commandments. He gave God gave them His law for them to guard, to be the guardians uh, and keepers of, you know, the oracles of God. And again, that made them special and superior to everyone else. The special standing with God was based not on their practicing the law, but on their possessing the law. The fact that they just had it, that God gave it to them, it didn't matter if they were living it out. Some were sincerely trying. But most of the Jews just felt like we were given the law, we have possession of it, it's all we need. It's all we need. Again, verse 17, and make your boast in God. Guys, the Jews boasted in their knowledge of the one true God, and they looked down on the Gentiles um, for their spiritual ignorance in worshiping all these many different pagan gods. Listen. They boasted in their knowledge of God, but they also boasted in God's knowledge of them. Verses like Amos 3, beginning of verse 2, where God said to them, You only have I known, speaking to Israel, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. Now, does that mean God didn't know any other families on the earth? No. The Hebrew word is the same word that was used of Cain. Cain knew his wife, and she bore him a son. It's a very intimate knowledge. Of course, God knew everybody that ever lived on the earth I mean, but you only have i known in the sense of this special relationship we have with each other now they love to quote that because it showed how you know they were special what they didn't quote was the second part of verse two hamus three therefore i will punish you for all your iniquities <laughs> hey look with knowledge as we said i think last time comes responsibility Sure, God brought them into a special, close, intimate relationship with him, gave him his law, taught him his ways, but all that meant they, were ha they had to live out now these things. They, they couldn't plead ignorance, right? He goes on in verse 18, and know his will. You boast in the fact that you know God's will. They knew God's will from his word, the law. So again, they couldn't plead ignorance. Again, verse 18, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. They prided themselves on being able to know right from wrong based on their instruction from the law of God. And guess what? Of course, they applauded everything God said was good and right. They said amen to that. I mean, look, 
many of the Jews, it wasn't that they were rebelling against what God said. They, they believed God's law was true. And they applauded these commandments and things that were so righteous. They didn't really, many of them, live up to it, though. And they didn't really, they thought, again, just having it, just knowing is all I need. Well, remember what James said? Don't just come to church and hear the word thinking that that's all you need to do. Uh, you deceive yourselves. You can't be just hearers of the word. You're going to be doers of the word. And that was going on back in the Old Testament as well. But um, I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the Word of God teaches us and instructs us in, the, in, the, in God's will and also His perfect standards, what's right and wrong. Now, guys, all these things were rooted in their heritage. It was all part of being a Jew. And this gave to the Jewish people a tremendous sense of pride. Now, Paul zeroes in on that pride in verses 19 to 20. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Let's break this down a little bit to see what Paul is saying to the Jewish people, primarily the Jewish religious leaders. First of all, he said that you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. See, this made them feel very proud. The Gentiles, they were blind, but we see. We see because God's given us the light of his law, his word, and it lights our path. And we know the way to go because God's law causes us to see the way to go, the way we should walk. Well, when Jesus came around, he indicted the, the Jewish leaders of Israel. Uh, turn to Matthew 23. Wow. I believe it's eight times he uh, really indicts the scribes and Pharisees. Eight times he calls them hypocrites um, as he lists their sins. Uh, here are these very religious men, so proud, um, so confident they were better than anyone else, and they were going to heaven when so many uh, were going to hell, all the Gentiles, but even many Jews. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 24. And listen, this is against Paul's backdrop of you think you're confident that you are a guide to the blind, right? What did Jesus say to these scribes and Pharisees? Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, I don't know if the disciples, they loved it when Jesus got the Pharisees and scribes. Because they were always putting down everybody else. So pompous, so arrogant, so proud. And here Jesus is just nailing these guys. I'm sure they must have been snickering. <laughs> that was a good one. You know, yeah, you're straining that, swallowing camel. Good one, Lord. That, that's it. Wow. Get them. You know? Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the inside of the cup and dish. Uh, excuse me, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... They are full of extortion and indulgence. He's talking about the heart, obviously, right? Blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, uh, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Guys, this is the classic example of the blind leading the blind. Here these people thought they, they, they saw clearly, they were able to guide other people that were blind into the truth, and they themselves, they may have had the truth, which they did, but they certainly weren't living it. They were just as blind, only they were blinded by their religion. They were blinded by the idea that because they, um, you know, well, the Pharisees and, and scribes, they, uh, they knew the law. They had memorized the law, many of them. Uh, scribes copied the law, and yet they really weren't living the law, but thought themselves very righteous. Hey, let me help you, poor Gentile, but the blind leading the blind. He also says that, that they're confident that they are, they are a light to those in darkness. Same idea, a light to those in darkness. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you, talking to Israel now, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. God had singled out Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. So they're picking up on that. And Paul's acknowledging that they saw themselves as lights to those in darkness. Well, that was something God had put in their, uh, in their heads. The trouble was they weren't lights. They were in, walking in just as much darkness as the Gentiles, although they would never see that or admit it. They were also instructors of the foolish, verse 20. Again, the Jews prided themselves in the fact that no one had to teach them the truth of God. However, they needed to teach everybody else. You ever meet somebody that you can never teach anything to? How about an expert? I think it was President Truman who said uh, an expert can never learn anything because then they stop being an expert. You can't teach a person who thinks they're an expert, can't teach them anything. They refuse to learn because they already know everything. If they were to learn anything from you, they wouldn't be the expert that they passed themselves off to be. And the Jews were like that. They had that mindset. They looked down on the, on the Gentiles as foolish pagans who needed the Jewish people to instruct them out of their pagan foolishness and into the true righteousness of the law of God. That's how they saw themselves, as teachers of the blind and those in darkness. Also teachers of babes, verse 20. Probably a reference to Gentile proselytes to Judaism. If a, if a Gentile did convert to Judaism, they were considered a babe and had to be taught. Obviously, well, we, we, that's true with people converting to Christianity. They're babes in Christ, and they need now to be fed and taught, so they grow. And the Jews had that idea, too, with their new converts to Judaism. Verse 20 also talks about them having, uh, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. These, these were all their confidences. And this one, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. I looked this up in the Greek. I was curious. The word form is a Greek word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis is a transformation. We think most uh, commonly about the caterpillar who, uh, you know, weaves a cocoon and then emerges a butterfly. It goes through a metamorphosis. The creature that entered the cocoon is not the creature that came out of the cocoon. And it's kind of like us 
when we are we die physically, our bodies are planted in the ground, the tomb becomes a cocoon in a sense, and what comes out of that tomb are glorified bodies and all, not like what, what entered in. And I'm really thankful for that. Uh, good heavens, I don't want this model. Uh, I, I want, I'm tired of dragging around this broken down Volkswagen. I want a Ferrari, man. I want a Ferrari. Well, that's, that's my hang up. But um, what does Paul mean by using this word? What's he talking about? Well, I believe Paul is saying that the Jewish people considered themselves to be the law transformed into human flesh, that they were the very embodiment of the law. It's not that they just had it and some of them tried to keep it. They were the law in human form. That's how arrogant they were. Now, I don't know if Paul picked up on that and had that in mind when he wrote to uh, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, I checked the Greek again. It's the same Greek word, metamorphosis. He talks about some in the church who have a form of godliness but deny its power from such turn away. There are some people who come to church and present themselves as the very epitome of Christianity. But God knows the heart. And even though they pass themselves off, they have this form of godliness. Um, it doesn't affect, it's all outward. It doesn't affect the heart. It certainly hasn't changed their life. Because they, they're good at putting on a show in church, you know, putting on the facade. But then when they leave and God sees them, whether they're in church or out of church, uh, their lives are completely different in the secular job or whatever they have than they are at church. But guys, this was this applied to the Jews in the Old Testament as well. They had a form of godliness, but again, it was fake or counterfeit appearance, skin deep. They were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked all clean and white and righteous and pure, but God saw the heart, and inside, their heart was just defiled, um, like a like a tomb. And they didn't practice what they preached. And um, that brings us to the second thing that became the basis for them feeling secure from God's judgment, the law. As I said earlier, uh, this was the second basis for their false security, that they possessed and preached God's law. But as Paul points out, possessing and preaching the law does a person no good if they're not going to what? practice the law they're not going to practice what god has said then knowing it not only doesn't help you it hurts you because now you're held responsible for knowing god's word and not doing it can't plead ignorance as one pastor put it he said and i quote in theological terms their preaching reflects orthodoxy right doctrine but their living does not reflect orthopraxy right practice they are much like corrupt police officials or judges whose lives are in direct uh, whose lives are in direct uh, contradiction of the laws they have sworn to uphold and enforce uh, and because of their greater responsibility they bring upon themselves greater punishment when they break those laws end quote and guys paul indicts the jews for their hypocrisy for their hypocrisy because they were guilty of committing the very sins they condemned the Gentiles for committing. I'm just going to read these to you. If you want to write, you can write them down. Um, he mentions stealing. Paul does, all right? And in Isaiah 56, verse 11, it says, Yes, they are greedy dogs. Uh, yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. They, they all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain. So they're greedy. 
which promotes stealing. Amos 8, verse 5. My people are constantly saying, when will the new moon be passed? Because they couldn't practice, uh, they couldn't sell and buy and sell during the holy times, the Sabbaths. You had to shut down. And they didn't like that. They wanted to make money. When will the new moon be passed? That we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit. And it goes on. They were ripping people off. God in numerous places said he hates unjust weights. He hates it when scales are not just. He doesn't want his people especially to be ripping anybody off. When you, when you have a business or you're involved in commerce, you, you are to be uh, honest. You, you represent me, God was saying to Israel. And you, I don't want you um, falsifying your scales and ripping people off and so on. Not only were they ripping off people, they were ripping off God. You say, what do you mean? Malachi 3, verses 8 and 9, where God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and offerings, God said. You are cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even this whole nation. And he goes on to say, look, this is the only time I'll let you test me. Bring your tithes into the storehouse and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing you can't even contain. Now, that was Old Testament law. What about tithing for the New Testament? Tithing was a law under the old economy for a free man, a person who owns stuff, right? In the New Covenant, we are not free men and women. We are the slaves of Christ. So technically, we don't own anything but what he gives us. It's all his. It's not like, well, here, God, under the old covenant, here's uh, your 10, and I'm going to keep the 90 for me. Under the new covenant, God, here's what you've given me. How much can I keep? How much do you want? There have been at least once in our ministry where uh, God laid on our heart to give our whole check that week to a family. You go, what are you going to do with that? You trust God. It's exciting. I get to use unrighteous mammon that I can't keep to purchase for me rewards that I can't lose. That's a good deal, if you're thinking about it right. He also talks about adultery. Turn to Deuteronomy 24. I want to show you this. Now, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, is the classic passage on, uh, well, one of the classic passages on divorce in the Old Testament. Let me read it to you. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. I'll let you dig all of the little nuances of that passage out. Here's the gist of it. God was forbidding legalized adultery. What do you mean? 
I'm married to a gal, but I want to have an affair with another gal. But I want it to be all legal and above board. So I'm going to divorce this gal. I'm going to marry the one I want to have an affair with, have my little fling, divorce her, remarry my first wife. Can you imagine the chaos? And God said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you divorce your first wife, and she marries another, and that guy divorces her. You can't take her back. Or if he dies, you still can't take her back. Because God wanted to make sure there wasn't this legalized wife swapping. Now, in the New Covenant, or the New Testament, uh, when Jesus was teaching, at one point, a lawyer came to him. <laughs> I'm watching lawyers. A lawyer came to him, and he was, he was parroting the common um, thinking of the day. Is it lawful to divorce? And he, I, you can read this in Matthew, uh, Matthew 19, 3, and Matthew 5, verse 32, and Mark uh, 10, and some other places. But the Lord came to Jesus and said, Is it lawful to divorce our wives for just any reason? Because really, there was a school. I think it was the school of Hillel. There was two main rabbinic schools, the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai. Shammai was the conservative. He interpreted Deuteronomy 24, the uncleanness to be on their wedding night. He realized she wasn't a virgin. And he was able to put her away. All right. Hillel said that an uncleanness could be basically anything. If she put too, too much salt on his eggs, if he disrespected his mother, if she let her hair down in public, if she was caught talking to another man in public, and a whole list of other things, that was grounds for a man to divorce his wife. Just give her a written certificate of divorce, give it, hand it to her, she's done. She couldn't divorce him for hardly any reason. One was if he renounced his Judaism and, became, and, and took up another religion. Now, here's the thing. We pretty much, we're pretty sure Saul of Tarsus was married. I mean, before he became Paul the Apostle. That he was married. Why? Because he had to be married to be in the Sanhedrin. He was a member. Also, he speaks on marriage with a lot of insight that a bachelor all his life probably wouldn't have had. So what happened? Well, I believe he probably married a gal as zealous for the law as he was, as a Pharisee, but then he gets saved. And I, I think that she didn't get saved, hopefully before she died maybe, but, but because Paul now had renounced his Judaism and became a cult member, Christianity, she was legally able to divorce him. And that's kind of the general thinking uh, of the scholars on this. But, um, again, Hillel, very liberal, and he basically taught that you could divorce your wife for pretty much any reason. That's what this lawyer is talking to Jesus about. And Jesus says no. Uh, from the very beginning, God made them male, the male and the female one flesh, and the only thing that could separate them is uh, unfaithfulness, if they have an affair. doesn't mean you have to divorce them, but you have a legal out or death. And that's what Jesus said. And you can read those passages on marriage. Very uh, controversial in those days. Well, it wasn't controversial. It's just that uh, people didn't want to do what God said. You know, it's amazing to me when people who don't really want to follow the word of God come across something that really steps on their toes. They say, that's controversial. As if nobody can know what that means. No, it just means that you don't want to live that way. So you're trying to pass it off on 
controversy. I don't know. I think most of the word of God is pretty clear. You know, sure, there are some passages that are, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what the Lord is saying, but they don't affect any major doctrine. I mean, all the passages that deal with our salvation, how we get to heaven, Jesus being God, I mean, that's all clear as a bell. But there are some things, you know, that people will pick on, you know, and, and timing of the rapture and are the gifts still around or do they cease at the end of the first, you know, that kind of stuff. That, that, that is, should never be points of division in a church, even though churches may hold to them. The issue is Christ. You know, when I was a young guy, young, a young um, pastor, young Christian, I used to love to argue with people because I had to show how smart I was. I just had to show people how smart I was. And the older I've gotten, you know, you, you grow up a little bit. And now I could talk to Baptists, Presbyterians, and all I want to talk about is Jesus. I, I want to, I, yeah, we have differences, non-essential differences. They don't affect our salvation. Why should they affect our fellowship? I just think that, you know, you know that you're growing in the Lord when you're not arguing about doctrine. You're, you're focusing on what really matters, Jesus, right? He goes on to say, you know, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? See, we got the law, you know. We're righteous because we got the law. And so Paul starts systematically tearing apart all their confidences, you know. Uh, the, you know, the others steal. Well, but do you steal? Gentile, they commit adultery every... Do you commit adultery? You say you abhor idolatry, but do you rob pagan temples? What does that mean? Well, Deuteronomy 7, verse 25, God said, you shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. So when you enter into the promised land, you're not to worship the Gentiles' pagan gods. But in fact, you're to take these pagan idols and burn them in the fire. Now, here's the thing. Often they were very ornate, gold and silver and precious stones. And so the Jewish people, many of them said, well, we'll burn the, the idols, but the gold and silver, I mean, you know, why should that go to waste? And God's coming against that in Deuteronomy 7. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Paul is saying that they claimed to hate idolatry, but didn't mind profiting off of some of it. That's why verse 23, You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Guys, let's stop here. we got a few minutes. Let's stop here and make some applications from what Paul is saying. In other words, how does this all speak to us? Well, I think that this relates to so many who have grown up in the church. I mean, all their lives. Who look down on those who live openly sinful and immoral lives. And yet they themselves are blind to their true standing in the eyes of God. Many who have grown up in the church are trusting in their Christian heritage, just like the Jews trusted in their heritage. Many who have grown up in the church are trusting in their Christian heritage to kind of shield and protect them from the judgment that's coming on the heathens. But not me, because I've 
gone to church my whole life. You know, there are those who believe that because they live in a country with Christian roots, it means they're automatically, automatically Christians. Well, you, you, you know, I'm an American, people will say. I'm not a Muslim, I'm not Jewish, so I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian by default. Okay? Read John 1, verses 12 and 13, where John talks about how God makes children. It's not their heritage, not by blood. It's not by rituals and other things. It's by believing in Jesus Christ. Believing and receiving Jesus Christ. There are those who just believe because they're born in America, they're automatically Christians, or because they've grown up in the church, been baptized, and keep holy days and church ceremonies and rituals, and my Catholicism is coming out. They're, they are putting their hope in these things as a kind of, I guess, a security blanket that will protect them from future judgment. Guys, in many ways, people today in the church, now I'm not saying they're all saved, but I'm saying they're churchgoers. Some of them have grown up in church, very self-righteous, looking down on, that. that's why when the Jesus movement kicked in in the 60s, mid-60s, started really started to roll, and these hippie kids started coming to these churches where the women were beautiful dresses and hats and the guys three-piece suits and all of a sudden here are these hippies walking in with tie-dyed t-shirts bell-bottom jeans barefoot long hair a lot of people couldn't handle that now some did some their faith and their love god gave them enough to embrace these kids and these kids taught these old timers some lessons about love and the old timers if they stuck around taught these kids lessons in truth they knew the word it was a great marriage it was a powerful marriage but a lot of these church goers all their lives couldn't deal with it couldn't deal with it they look, they look so far down on these kids that i'm sure some of them thought how could they even be saved they're irredeemable heard that somewhere they're irredeemable the jews said the gentiles were irredeemable God only made the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. Can you imagine that? No wonder they didn't reach many Gentiles with the, because they themselves hated Gentiles. But in many ways, people today who grew up in church uh, are guilty of the very things the Jews did. In fact, we could very easily apply Paul's condemnation of Jewish hypocrisy to many in the church, whether they be Catholic or Protestant even today. Paul could have been writing this like this. Indeed, you call yourself a Christian. You rely on the fact that you have the Holy Scriptures. You make your boast in that you know the true God. You're not an atheist or some ignorant pagan living in some third world country worshiping foolish idols. You come to church and you hear the word of God being taught. You know what the will of God is and mentally approve and applaud what's good and right because of what God has said in his word. You know, it could have very been easy for Paul to write this instead of the Jews, to the church today. Really, as a Roman Catholic, we were taught that the Roman Catholic Church was the one true church, and that Protestant churches were playing games. Now, when we first started, God was working in the hearts. Of, we, I think we were catching the, the last part of the wave of the Jesus movement. I remember that our young people, teenagers 
They were going out, and nobody had to organize them to go out and share their faith. They got together. They would go to the game rooms. They would go to the place, the pinball places, and they would start witnessing. And they were bringing kids to church. The Holy Spirit was working in their hearts. So we saw a little tail end of the Jesus movement, the wave come out to the Midwest. And I remember one uh, Sunday. Now, we had just started. We were in the clubhouse of our townhouse, all right? And one of the young gals, teenager, who was coming, and she was excited and got saved, brought her mother, who was a staunch Catholic. I think her mom just wanted to check us out. And it came back to me after the service. Later on, this young girl came back, and I said, hey, how'd you mom like the service? Well, she, she kind of thought you guys were just playing church. And see, that's the mentality, especially if you belong to a high church. What is that, liturgical? Low church is what we are, very non-liturgical. You come in as you're dressed. We, we do some worship songs. There's no robes. There's no candle, no incense, no stained glass windows. Uh, we open the Bible. We just teach. From, that's low church. It's non-liturgical. But folks that are into the liturgical churches, like Roman Catholics or uh, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, very high church. They look down. We had a guy in the church whose um, mother died. They were Greek Orthodox. He was saved. But his mom and dad were still Greek Orthodox. And she died. And we went to the wake to support. And the, um, I don't know, I guess they're called priests, Greek Orthodox Church. I think they're called priests still. Um, and... Um, he just he had his robes on, a fancy hat, waving incense. We couldn't breathe, honestly. We could not breathe. I'm, I'm backing out. I, I was I, I couldn't breathe. He's incense everywhere. I'm, you're gonna kill me. But when the one guy in our church introduced me to this guy and told him I was his pastor, you see him look on his face, complete derision, like, okay, because I didn't have the robe and the fancy hat on or whatever. But we were taught as Roman Catholics that we were the one true church. Protestant denominations were playing church. They didn't really have the truth that God had given to us. But you know what? And we'll stop here. Pick it up next time. But you could lump all religious people together. And I think most of them probably have a great sense of pride of in their superiority over the non-churched, the non-churched, or the unchurched, as some call them, okay? Um, there is a pride that comes along with, hey, I go to church every week, you know? I'm in church every week. Huh? Do you go to church every week? Well, I kind of have to, but yeah, I go to church every week. I mean, I never used to. Things change. God works. Uh, but... You see that, and I'm sure you all know people in your families that have that mentality. That, you know, because they grew up in the church and were baptized, confirmed, whatever else they were, they are superior morally and spiritually to the unchurched. Isn't it interesting when God begins to move? When, Je when Jesus, and I'll finish with this, when Jesus started the most important movement in the history of humanity, it's interesting, he didn't go to the seminaries, the Bible colleges of Israel. He went to the fishermen. 
the blue collar guys because he knew how tainted the pool was of all these religious leaders and how proud and arrogant and how they were locked into their interpretations of the word. Much of it wasn't even true. They were completely uh, misinterpreting what God said. So Jesus started fresh. He went to the fishermen and just the average people to start a brand new movement. And that's what he did with the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. He didn't go to the, the churches or the Bible colleges or seminaries. He went to the beaches. He started to touch the hippies, people that nobody wanted to associate with, let alone think they could get saved. You know, when God is doing a new thing, be careful you don't become the old wineskin like the self-righteous older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Yeah, the kid was, you know, he wanted to live the fast life. And the father let him do his thing. It broke him. And he came back, I think, a redeemed man. But the self-righteous brother, older brother, I don't know what lesson he actually learned. He seemed as hard as ever. This son of yours. I mean, look at him. Look at how he's, I've always been here. I've never left you. And the father rightly said, look, I, I love you. I've always loved you. But we should rejoice. This, this brother of yours who was lost is found. And so on. It's so sad when church people who ought to be the most zealous to reach the unsaved are often the most difficult because they're so locked in and entrenched in their churchianity, whatever. So keep that in mind. We will, God willing... Pick it up next week as we continue looking at Paul's arguments for this whole section. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you reach down and save sinners like us. And now give us, the grace, give us grace, Lord, that we not become hardened Pharisees, smug, arrogant, full of self-righteousness and pride. Lord, keep our hearts tender, humble, because I believe you want to do another work. I don't know if it's going to go along with saving America. Probably won't, but it's going to be a work of saving souls. And give us grace, Lord, not to be so locked into our church traditions and things that we are resistant. We become old wineskins, and you want to pour some new wine into us, we're too brittle. And we just, we just break. And give us grace not to do that, to be open to a new move of the Spirit, in these last days. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.